Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Bernard Ashby. He is a vascular cardiologist. He is the owner and medical director of Comprehensive Vascular Care. It's a practice down in South Florida. Bernard, welcome to the show. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. So tell us, man, what is a vascular cardiologist? So that's a great question and a question I get quite often. And so vascular cardiology is a relatively new field. And basically what it means is that I'm board certified in cardiovascular disease as well as vascular medicine. So I did a three-year fellowship in cardiology, and after that, I did a one-year fellowship in vascular medicine. And uh, and what vascular medicine is, is a non-invasive field that basically deals with uh, blood vessels. So I I, I basically tell people I'm a glorified plumber, and so (laughs) I deal with... Yeah, so I deal with the veins, the arteries, and the lymphatics, and in addition to the heart. Glorified plumber, ain't that uh, Earl Campbell's uh, field? Yeah, I know that, that sounds about right, but I don't have a scope. <laughs> so, what's a, a typical day or a typical week like for you at your practice? Well, my day to day actually varies depending on you know a number of factors, but the main factor that affects my schedule is whether or not I'm on call. And basically, I take call maybe twice a month. When I'm on call, I essentially cover the hospital, and um, it's a large hospital that I cover. And I, I cover all of the cardiology cases that come into the ER. Mm-hmm. And um, because of that, you know, I, I get quite busy during my call weeks, uh, during my call days, because those patients, while they're in the hospital, I cover them. And so uh, I'm in the hospital probably in the morning time. And then in the afternoons, I'm in clinic. But in my non-call weeks, I essentially just do you know, outpatient medicine, and I see patients. And because I started a new practice, I do a lot of administrative things. So there's a lot of business stuff going on and a lot of admin, which I really dislike, but it's necessary. And, you know, as a new physician entrepreneur, it's important to me to create a good, strong foundation for my practice so it will grow. So how many patients are you seeing a day in your clinic? Uh, usually about 10 patients a day. It's not that much um, currently. And I'm new, but I try to space my patients out so I'm not overwhelming my staff or myself. But as I you know, progress, the patient load is increasing. So I'm actually in the process of hiring a nurse practitioner and will soon be increasing my patient load. And then part of a lot of what you do is procedures, right? Um, echocardiograms and, and whatnot. When, when and where are you performing those procedures? So um, the echoes are done by my sonographers, but in the hospital, I do transesophageal echocardiograms. I do, you know, temporary pacemakers, a few other things. And so that primarily occurs when I'm on call. But I'm primarily a non-invasive uh, guy, meaning that, I don't do many procedures. My primary focus and my primary focus is on medical management of cardiovascular and vascular disease. How long has your practice been open? 
I opened my doors in October 2018. Takes a lot to just step out and hang a shingle and open your own practice. What led you to make that decision? Yeah, I mean, for a number of reasons, but, you know, most physicians are basically trained to become employees. What happens is when we get out of fellowship, first thing that we do, or actually while we're in fellowship, the first thing that we do is look for jobs. And most of us end up at a hospital or university or a private practice where we, you know, we work a lot of hours. And at some point, if you do well, the practices promise you partnership. And, you know, the, the, the sneaky secret is that you don't really become a partner. You go from a salaried employee to a, um, a profit-sharing model mm-hmm. where basically based on the amount of revenue that you generate, you collect a portion of that. And then the other part of that goes to overhead and the profit of the group. And so as an employee, um, actually, let me backtrack a little bit. I started my first job at Mount Sinai Medical Center where I was a, uh, an attending cardiologist. And I also had a, uh, an appointment at Columbia University where I was a professor there. And uh, it was cool, but at the end of the day, I, I saw quite a few issues, not the least of which was related to the fact that my boss was an MBA. Basically, his main incentive was profit. And so uh, essentially a lot of the work that I did was to maintain the profit margins of the, the hospital and not necessarily, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily dedicated towards patient care. And so I decided that the best option for me was to uh, be independent and to create a practice that was focused on quality patient care and uh, not necessarily profits. And so that's when I decided to go out and become an independent practitioner and so I basically opened a practice in Miami, and uh, it did quite well. And I rapidly expanded and opened up a second location about uh, two hours north of Miami in, in the Treasure Coast of Florida. And uh, now I have two different offices, uh, both of which are very productive in terms of um, our patient loads. And now that... Um, I'm getting a bit overwhelmed. I'm hiring mid-levels for both offices so that I can expand my reach and just focus on um, the patients that are very needy. So why don't you take us back to the beginning when you decided to become a physician? Yeah, so, you know, I was born and raised in, in South Florida. I was born at Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami. But my parents are from the Caribbean, and uh, my dad is from Aruba, and my mom is from St. Kitts. And as any West Indian kid can tell you, the highest achievement is to become a doctor. I mean, you can be the CEO of Google, and that pales in comparison <laughs> to being a doctor. So my mom pretty much brainwashed me. Uh, she, was, she, was, she is a respiratory therapist, and, you know, uh, I thought that I always wanted to be a doctor because that's what I wanted to do. But in hindsight, she probably brainwashed me. But it wasn't until high school that, I actually found my, my bearings and learned more about the field and more about the inequities that exist in healthcare and realized the potential impact that I could have. And so that's why when I developed my, my true passion for medicine and went full throttle and decided to become a doctor on my own merit 
and, um, you know, got focused. Before that, I was always a, a smart student, but not very much, not, not really engaged. And I actually got kicked out of my high school. And um, that was sort of a rude awakening for me. And that's when I decided. What did you, you get kicked out for? Uh, well, I was actually in a magnet program. So I, was, I wasn't ever a bad kid. I was just kind of, you know, aloof and just was focused on girls and just, you know, having fun and uh, didn't do any work. And because of that, I got kicked out of the magnet program. And because the high school that I was at was not in my um, my zone, I had to, you know, get the package. And so, you know, they, they jazzed, jazzed me out of the school. Yeah, you was just being you. I ended up going to my home school. You said what? You was just being you. Yeah, exactly. I was just chilling <laughs> and, you know, get, got caught up. You know, I had my homies and was more focused on being, being cool and getting girls. And, you know, eventually, you know, I grew up, matured a little bit and, you know, I got focused so much. It wasn't until my last year of high school that I actually did well in terms of grades. And luckily, I scored very well on the SAT, and that's what allowed me to actually get into college. And you went to Florida State for undergrad, right? That is correct. Yes, I know you crossed paths with one of the, uh, my other friends, Dr. Simpson. She's a neurosurgeon. She was on the show earlier. Yeah. How do you remember her back in, uh, in at FSU? Man, me and Simpson, you know, we were just... We were doing our thing. We were some regular students. No one would have ever guessed that we would be a cardiologist and a neurosurgeon. Um, she was just a chill person, you know, used to party and do her thing, and so did I. But, you know, low-key, we, we, we would do our work, but no one identified us as the smart kids. I mean, other other students were the, the chosen ones. And so when we both went to med school, uh, people were pretty pretty surprised. That, that's so often the case for, for a lot of folks that look like us. Yeah. And I know she mentioned at Florida State there were some um, programs that you guys did that kind of helped set you up for uh, medical school. Could you talk about that? Oh, man. Yeah, that program saved me, man. I mean, essentially it was a outreach program that was sponsored by the Florida State University Medical School, which just opened when I got there for undergrad. And basically, it provided tutoring and a lot of support services that I that I used. I mean, when I got to college, I was completely unprepared. I was overwhelmed. I didn't do very well. And I took uh, advantage of the tutoring program to catch up. And, um, I, you know, my story is one of, you know, it's one of those stories that, you know, you wouldn't expect. I was, I was, I was highly unlikely to be where I'm at. And uh, again, it was because of that support program that uh, it gave me uh, the, the tools to, you know, basically climb out of the ditch that I was in and catch up. And so I spent most of my first year of college just catching up and, you know, learning some fundamentals. And uh, once I did that, I, I pretty much took off. So you went from South Florida to North Florida, and then eventually it's yeah. Cornell for medical school. That is correct. How did you get to? Yeah, how did you get to Cornell? Like, what was that applications process like for you coming out of uh, Florida State? Well, you know, the way I ended up at Cornell was sort of serendipitous. Um, Cornell was not on my radar, but through that program, I went to a what, what should we call it? This conference that was at University of Florida, and I met a woman that was. Um, representing Cornell, and you know, she told me all about it. Told me it was Ivy League and all this stuff, and you know, I just went ahead and applied. 
and didn't think I would get in. And, you know, by the grace of God, I got into Cornell. But in terms of the application process, it was the, the traditional application process for med school. After, you, you know, you get your GPA and your MCAT scores, you have to get your recommendation letters and put together a personal statement and, um, and just apply. And it, another thing that um, helped me was that I had an inside person in the, um, uh, I don't know what, what department that is, but the department is responsible for receiving your recommendation letters and whatnot. Um, one of the secretaries actually told me that one of, one of the recommendation letters that I got was super weak. It was from my, my biochemistry teacher, a white dude, but you know, I got the highest grade in the class as well and uh, assumed that a biochemistry review letter would, would be good. I mean, a biochemistry uh, recommendation letter would be strong. And uh, he wrote, he wrote me some, some, some BS letter, and um, luckily I, I found that out before I submitted it and was able to get a letter from someone else that was wow. much stronger. So, wow. so you know, it's just one of those examples of, of me being supported and, and, and protected by, by the village, man, because a lot of uh, people who, you know, you wouldn't necessarily consider individuals that would aid in, in uh, your candidacy helped me out, man. There, there was a lot of secretaries and just random people that, that just looked out for me. So you know, I benefited from that for sure. How was that transition moving to Cornell, Ivy League? Um, how was the diversity and, and what was your experience there? Man, it, it was it was a, a rough transition. I mean, when I got there, you know, I was, you know, I had my earrings in and dressed the way I did and talked the way I did. And, and because of that, you know, um, I was a target. Uh, I used to get, uh, you know, low marks on subjective grades. You know, when I would get like these reviews from my professors, they would, you know, say things like, um, Ashby needs to work on his grammar and, and like that. But I actually did quite well at Cornell because at that point I was a very strong student and uh, I used to, you know, murder the tests and murder the uh, standardized exams. But I used to still have to contend with, you know, my subjective grades, which which would always pull down my my average. So I spent a lot of time contesting grades that I got, you know, because you know some, you know, would uh, give me a low mark for an oral exam, but then I would, you know, get in the in the top tenth or first or whatever percentile on the standardized exams, and so I would have to, you know, advocate for my my grades to be increased because I would, you know, pretty much be in line for honors, but. I would get pulled down to a high pass, sometimes even just a pass, because the subjective grades would pull me down. And, that, you know, that's a, a common theme for a lot of black folks. And unfortunately, you know, folks, a lot of black folks don't test that well. You know what I mean? And uh, because of that, they, they, they quote unquote, are struggling students. Yeah. And um, luckily, I tested well. And that's what allowed me to do uh well at Cornell, despite the fact that I, I would get uh, low marks and a lot of the subjective parts of my grade, because, you know, I, I was never, I didn't go to private school. I didn't speak the Queen's English. And uh, because of that, um, I would get marked down, uh, unfortunately. But, but yeah, I did well. And, you know, overall, my, my experience at Cornell was a positive one. Uh, I did have a lot of support uh, there as well. And, uh, luckily, I, uh, I matched you well for residency. Yeah, I want to focus in on this and ask this question because it's a difficult question and one that comes up often. And I know a lot of 
medical students, residents of color struggle with this. The choice between fitting in and being yourself and standing out, the code switch question. So how did you, I mean, we clearly know which way you went. Um, Did you think about, I'm sure people were like, hey, Bernard, just do this, do that, fit in. How did you approach that? Well, yeah, I mean, I used to code switch like a <laughs> I mean, I, I, I learned I learned quick that you know if I if I was myself, people would just assume that I, that I was dumb, and so I used to try and speak all proper and shit and speak the Queen's English and probably sounded dumb to them anyways, and uh, you know just try to survive because you know in residency and in intern in, internship in particular, it was tough as hell. I mean, I you know I struggled because you know internship is more about organization and uh and just efficiency more so than than, than knowledge and be, because i wasn't the most organized and um i had difficulty in just getting my notes done before rounds uh, i used to struggle and um you know my residents you know they i don't know i just didn't have a connection with them and uh you know oftentimes i would get a call from the chief or a program director about you know, something that my resident um, was was uh, unhappy with, but my residents never spoke to me about it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They never would come to say, say, hey, you know, you're you're not doing your notes or this is not happening. How can I help you? It would never be that. It would just be, uh, I, would, I would go to the principal's office, so to speak. And, um, you know, basically I had to grind it out. And uh, by the time I was a second year, I, I was, I, I was killing it. But yeah. I had to get it out the mud, so to speak, and, and you know, do it, you know, build myself up. I think that correlates well to where you're at today. Um, I'm going to run this quote by you. Did you or did you not say Donald Trump needs to jazzy Jeff his ass up out the White House on national television? Uh, yeah, I definitely said that. Definitely so, said that. My mom so, wasn't pleased, but I said what I said. <laughs> so, so, so during this COVID pandemic, you have been front and center, hold it down for our people down there in South Florida. You're on The Breakfast Club, MSNBC, CNN, uh, always wearing your custom comprehensive vascular care track suit. Uh, what was it? Leslie Jones uh, even made a post about you? Yeah, yeah, she did. She did. And, yeah, and that's when I know I made it. <laughs> exactly. And this whole time you've been spitting truth. You've been spitting facts. It's been unfiltered. You're talking about COVID-19 and how communities need health care that they're not receiving. Yeah. Um, how did you come to, to grow to that platform? Another great question. So uh, I ended up getting connected with a, a group called Committee to Protect Medicare. And essentially... Their entire mandate is to increase access to insurance, I mean, healthcare, and get people insured, but more specifically, get them access to quality physicians and, and, and hospital systems. And so um, they reached out to me and saw what I was doing on social media and uh, basically started booking me for uh, media engagement. But it wasn't really until I did Joy Reid that I took off. Uh, she loved me. And once she loved me, everybody else loved me. Mm-hmm. And um, I, they would just reach out, and they still reach out, and they want me to 
they asked me to speak on various topics, but it's mainly COVID-19 related. And despite the, the rough edges and the unfiltered takes. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and what I attribute it to is the fact that I'm able to be myself, you know, um, because I left the place and I left the institution, I was able to be myself and be dynamic and, and not filtered and not worry about what Big Brother would think of what I have to say. Now, now it's what I have to say, and it's like what they think, what anybody thinks. You know what I mean? I'm my own boss, and I'm going to do it my way. And uh, that's essentially what allowed me to be different than every other robotic doctor that they bring on bring on those shows. You know, they, they come on, they, they talk in, in, you know, in relatively monotone, uh, in a monotone way, and, you know, they, they sound like, you know, academics. But what I'm basically doing uh, is sort of revolutionary in that I'm being myself. Uh, you know, I speak like a regular dude that, you know, anybody, like I speak like a regular dude. Like, like we all speak the same way, but as, as black folks in America dealing with a uh, predominantly white country, we feel like we have to sound a certain way so that we come off as intelligent. But... You know, I, I already been co-signed by, by the white folks. You know what I mean? I've already, you know, I got my Ivy League degrees, and you know, I was chief uh, fellow at one point, and you know, uh, I've, I've excelled at, at every level. And so, you know, they can't say shit to me, and I can just be myself without having to deal with, with what so many of us have to deal with, which is that 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 concept of um, uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, the imposter syndrome. Yeah. You know, so ain't none of that with me because I, I know I'm supposed to be there. I don't feel like no imposter. And, um, you know, the society tells us that we're less than and, and it's, it's really a, a remnant of, of slavery, but also, you know, currently what society tells us. I mean, if it ain't, if it ain't white, it ain't right. But I'm black and I'm proud and, and, and I know that um, not only do I deserve to, to, to be there, but, but I need to be there. And we need to have more folks like me and and, and you and, and others who are not just uh, functioning at a high level, but shifting these institutions and creating our own institutions to actually address uh, the issues that, that exist in our communities, especially as it pertains to healthcare. Your reputation and your, I guess, your pedigree, as they say, speaks for itself. So you, because you went to med school at Columbia, uh, was it... Uh, internal medicine residency at George Washington University. Yeah, now I went to med school at Cornell. I uh, did my residency at Columbia, mm-hmm. and then I did uh, policy slash cardiology at George Washington, and then I went to Hopkins and did my vascular training. And then you went to Princeton for health policy. Yeah, yeah. Between Columbia and and George Washington, I did uh, a master's in policy at Princeton. Yeah, no, we, we appreciate you. We appreciate all that you're doing and being out there on the front lines. And I'm sure your patients and folks enjoy, I mean, you know, the number of times folks from the, the RMRN group, we've, we've seen you on the news, you know, in the hospital or other people see you on the news, man. You, you're really uh, affecting change. I appreciate that, man. And you know, I, I do it for my people. I do it for my community. And, you know, I, and I do it for the right reasons. You know, this is really my passion, my calling. And um, I'm all about 
kicking down doors and, and opening, uh, op- creating opportunities for other folks. And mentorship is extremely important. And I always say that, you know, I, I practice the village mentality because the village raised me. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be here if a lot of people didn't look out for me uh, in big and small ways. And I, I don't act like I am a self-made man. Um, I, I am a product of, of my, my community. So it's definitely a, a mandate of mine to, to give back as much as possible to, to prove everybody right Yeah, and, and, and uh, you know, validate their, their investment in me. And, and speaking of mentorship, I know you were involved in a lot of different um, avenues to provide that mentorship and guidance in the community. What What's one of the ones um, you're most excited about and, and you enjoyed the most? I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm, I do a lot of different programs, but really uh, what I'm most proud of is, is by my one-on-one mentorship with my mentee. So, you know, I just love the fact that I'm able to help people and guide them through an incredibly difficult process. And so, you know, having that one-on-one time where I can sit down and speak to my mentees and, you know, enlighten them about the process of becoming a doctor, uh, I find it very rewarding. And, I, and I'm, I'm happy to, to top my record that every single one of my mentees are either uh, in medical, sh- medical school or training or are physicians. And it's really a testament to the fact that uh, I help them not recreate the wheel. Uh, all too often, uh, students of color get their uh, advice from, you know, uh, cookie cutter people such as their advisor, the college advisor, who never went to med school, never sat on the admissions committee, and don't know what they talk about half the time. And, and, and you're competing against people who are uh, children of doctors, right? Who um, you know really have uh, all the information and resources at their disposal. And and what I try to do is uh, try to level the playing field. I mean. You know, you're never going to love the playing field, but at least as a mentor, I could uh, make the path to becoming a physician a lot less arduous. Yeah, and, and I know you've talked before about mentorship, and I think you had a bit of a different style. I know you mentioned kind of rolling up in uh, some of the nice cars and and nice clothes, and and just kind of relating with the the kids that you know they're looking up to the hip hop stars and rappers, and then you were there to kind of provide a different route. Yeah, I mean, I don't really floss like that, but you know, one of the things that I did do when I became a cardiologist was, was you know, get a nice whip, and it was a gift to myself. And you know, it was one of those things uh, that I grew up wanting to do when I was a kid. I was like, I, I want a, I want a Lamborghini. I didn't quite get a Lambo, but I got a Mazi, and um, and I love it. But <laughs> but what I what I found is that. You know the, the 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 kids in the hood. When I would pull up, you know that they like once they saw the whip, that they would listen to me. You know that, that like all of a sudden they were like, "Yo, like this dude got 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 a Mozzie. I want a Mozzie. I wonder how he got it." And it would immediately grab their attention. And so you know I, I don't do it to floss at all, but what I do find is that um, a lot of the kids in the community, because you know society incentivizes us to want nice things. Uh, you have to meet them where they're at, and yeah. um, you know, once I'm engaged and I, and I, you know, I have their attention, you know, I let them know that the, the Mazi, Mazi ain't, you know, what I mean, it's just a, a material thing, 
I mean, what, what what's really valuable is is the impact that you have on your family and your community, and what you can do to change everybody else's circumstances. So once I have that air, then um, I can do a lot more damage in terms of dismantling uh, a lot of the mental slavery that that we see in our communities. That's dope, man. Use it as a, as a means to an end. Yeah, for sure. And and me and me getting that mozzie was was kind of a form of mental slavery. I mean, you know, um, uh, I wanted that nice car. I wanted, I you know, I wanted to to stunt, but you know, once I got it, I mean, it it, it didn't mean as much to me, and and um, it it you know, I've evolved as a person, and I understand uh, and appreciate uh, the the things that are that have real value, because um, you know, as you get older, and and if you're someone like me who, who's always learning, and not just medicine, I love learning history, and I love learning culture, and I love learning. You know, you know psychology, and because of that, I, I've evolved, and my thinking is as a the new cardiologist is is much different than than today as a uh, a grown man with a son, and um, I just view the world differently. And so, because of that, I, I approach everything differently. And one of the things that I try to do is is try to disseminate the information that I learned, but also encourage my mentees and and really anyone that I come in contact with to to be an avid learner, you know, and, and try to think outside of the box and not, not just depend on the education that was, was given to you because that, that our education is very biased and we, we've been fundamentally miseducated in a lot of ways. So we, we've been fundamentally miseducated in a lot of ways. And so uh, it's important that folks not only learn but seek primary sources and so that, that they're able to gain that information and, and uh, synthesize it and, uh, you know, be independent thinkers because so much of what we learn has been filtered through the lenses of other folks, uh, many of which, you know, come from uh, backgrounds that are not anything like ours. And one of the things that I'm proud of is, is learning more about history, all history, but more specifically uh, black history, African history, and that has, has empowered me as an individual. Well, I'm, I'm trying to evolve too, man. So let me borrow that uh, mozzie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I got you, man. You, you, you can push it anytime you come to Miami, man. Pull up on me. I got All you. All right. Well, we, we got a little ways to go on the, on the vaccine before I get down down that way. For sure. Um, Dr. Ashby, thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, you have your practice down there in South Florida. Talk to the people. We got some listeners down there that may be looking for a cardiologist. It is the, you know, heart disease is what the number one leading cause of death in, in black or African-Americans. Is that yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. It's the number one cause of death in the U.S. and the developed world. Just like every other disease or every bad, every other bad thing that happens, it, black folks die at a higher clip than everyone else. And um, it, you know, it's an incredibly impactful field. So, you know, if you are concerned about your your health, if you just want to get screened, uh, I'm very much uh, a proponent of preventative medicine. You know, pull up on me. And if you have a cardiovascular condition, pull up on me. But I, but I tend to focus on lifestyle modification and, and health rather than, than just treatment. You know, if you ever come to see me, uh, you'll get more than just some pills. You'll, you'll get, uh, well, hopefully you won't get any pills, but, but you'll, you'll get a prescription for improving your health overall and not just treatment. So if you ever need a cardiologist, pull up on me. It's called Comprehensive Vascular Care. We have offices in Miami and another one in uh, Port St. Lucie in the Treasure Coast. 
you know, just look me up. I'll give you the phone number, but, you know, just look me up or visit our website at cgcmedicine.com. And definitely follow Dr. Ashby on social media. It's B.Ashby, A-S-H-B-Y-M-D on Instagram. He's also on Twitter. He's always putting out good information. In addition to cardiology, you also offer some COVID-related services? Yeah. I mean, basically, I just do testing, uh, primarily antigen and uh, molecular testing, but also do antibody testing as well. So uh, that, that's kind of the side hustle of my practice. It's time to get tested. Uh, we also do flu and strep throat testing as well. But at the end of the day, I'm a cardiologist, and that's my primary focus. Well, Dr. Ashby, thank you so much for joining us. I uh, know I definitely enjoyed our conversation, and our listeners will uh, learn a lot and take away a lot of good things from what you said. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me. The Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen Bradley.